and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. Uh, joined, as always, not in person this time, but joined virtually by Nizar Hassan. Nizar, how, how is quarantine treating you? It's okay. It's okay. Got too used to it, I think. <laughs> yeah, it, it's become the new normal for sure. This is our third week recording in lockdown, uh, and because of that, because we're doing everything remotely, that sort of opens up our potential roster of guests who might come on the program. And so this week, we are really super excited to have, all the way from Dublin, Ireland, Mohamed Faour, a postdoc researcher in finance at the University College Dublin, and one of the nerds, uh, the economic uh, experts that have been all over Twitter, uh, really raising the bar as far as uh, knowledge of the Lebanese economy and Lebanese finances go. Uh, Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, man. Uh, happy to be here. Great to have you. Uh, just want to say, like, all of the nerds hate to be called experts, so I think, Ben, you should take that back. Yeah, I cringed when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, people who know more about what they're talking about than most of our elected officials. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Good. All right, before we get to the, the finance and everything going on with the banks and BDL, which we're uh, going to be talking about later, uh, very quickly, we want to go over just uh, the coronavirus, what's going on, give you guys an update. As of, we're recording this on Sunday morning, uh, the latest numbers that we have are from Saturday. And as of Saturday, there were officially 520 cases in Lebanon, and there had been 17 deaths. Now, this is a big slowdown in new cases from the week before. If you remember the week before, the numbers had roughly doubled uh, in terms of new cases from around 200 to around 400. Well, this week, this past week, that went from 400 to, you know, five, 500, five, you know, 400 some odd to 500 some odd. So it's a, a really huge slowdown in the number of new cases that we know about. However, if you look at the death rate, that, that's kept at the, at, at, at the same rate, right? You, uh, it doubled uh, the week before. And then this last week, it also roughly doubled. So as far as that goes, we've got this mismatch between our numbers. The, the death rate has continued to double every week, but the number of new identified cases uh, has really dropped off. So what, what's going on here? Number one, of course, there's a lag. You don't just die immediately. Uh, if you get coronavirus, of course, you become infected. And then if you are one of the unfortunate ones, then it takes, you know, two or three weeks. And so there's that. But also, if you thought, oh, you know, 500 cases, that sounds like not a whole lot. Maybe there's something else going on there. Well, yeah, Lebanon does not seem to be testing nearly as much as it should be. Uh, last week, I, I referenced uh, Fatima Sayah. Uh, who is a, a health researcher at the University of Alberta. Uh, she had a, a great tweet thread uh, a couple days ago, and, and she's saying we are missing a whole lot of cases here in Lebanon, and, and maybe even up to like 87% of the cases, we don't know about them. And so this really means that there should be a priority on testing, test, 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 so that we can figure out what the extent of this is. I would also add that I'm not entirely sure about the death totals. There is some question as to whether those are are all of the deaths from coronavirus or just the ones that are happening, you know, in hospitals uh, and the like. Also, as far as the government response to the coronavirus uh, goes, right now we are uh, scheduled to end the lockdown on April 12th. We don't think that that's likely. And just right before we pressed record, we also got news that uh, starting tomorrow on Monday, they're going to start limiting the cars that can drive. And so if you've got a car with an odd license plate number, then you're allowed to move Monday, Wednesday, Friday. If you've got an even number, then you can move Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, no vehicles allowed on Sunday. 
Of course, this excludes uh, a number of vital personnel and everything, but it looks like Lebanon is moving in the opposite direction. Instead of opening back up, no authorities think that they need to clamp down even harder. Also today, we're supposed to have the first of the expat returns. We talked about this last week, about a number of Lebanese being stranded abroad and how the government was going to bring them back. Well, Sunday today is the first day of those flights. Yeah, and speaking of of expat returns, we had a statement issued by the Middle East Airlines, the official uh, airlines in Lebanon. They mentioned that, you know, they're, they're based on the request of the Lebanese government, there are uh, flights that are coming back. But one small note is that the prices on these flights, first of all, you have business class and economy, which is interesting, but also that you have um, uh, prices that are four times the usual prices. And they say that in statement, we're sorry that these are, you know, four times the usual prices and they are in dollars. And they say that this is because um, because they are exceptional flights that where the airplanes are going uh, empty to the country of destination and coming back full of passengers. So they're losing one flight and that's why the prices are so high. And I just found it really such a disgrace that the government can't, you know, subsidize a couple of a few flights uh, uh, in this exceptional situation and make, you know, people including, you know, students and people who need every penny they're collecting abroad before coming back home and definitely some, uh, in some cases, uh, save, spare some cash in the process. So it was really, really a very low move by, by the government not to think about this aspect and by Middle East to hike the prices so much. Especially considering that MEA is state-owned and not a private uh, airline. Absolutely, absolutely. Exactly. We also had a different kind of um, piece of news this week with uh, comedian Wissam Saad. He's a comedian. He has a show on uh, Al Jadid, and um, he has this character called Abu Talal, where he has this very ex- exaggerated kind of accent from Saida and South Lebanon. And uh, Abu Talal is supposed to be uh, one of these funny but also a bit traditional characters, I think. And I'm not sure how traditional or how conservative he is compared to the uh, to the actor's uh, you know point of point of view or anything. This time he went really beyond any uh, acceptable bars in my opinion, and he went on this full misogynistic uh, kind of rant uh, where he said where he was talking about girls who post videos of them, of themselves dancing on. TikTok, which is for those who don't know it, it's a it's an app where you post your video, for example, singing, syncing, lip syncing to a song or dancing to a specific song, etc. It's very popular among teenagers and lately because of uh, self quarantine among basically everyone who's regressing back to teenage years. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> uh, some, including myself, like I downloaded it, but I haven't used it yet. So anyway, with Sam Saad went on this misogynistic rant saying like, yeah, g- you girls using TikTok to post your uh, to post your videos, dancing and dressing in, in this way or another, like as if a new Mia Khalifa is born inside you. Uh, you, you, what do you expect when you do this? What do you expect will happen in your life? Will you think you will go down to the grocery store and uh, and just you know order a bag of sugar and nothing happens? If I was the shop owner, I would close the the metallic store and put the cucumber in the cave or something like that. He basically said that if he would was the grocery store owner, he would rape a girl because Oof. he has the responsibility. Yeah, I couldn't believe what, I mean, I, I really, I just don't have anything appropriate to say about this. I just think he's a fucking idiot. And uh, he yeah. went, basically, he sounds like it's one of the worst things that I can imagine being done on TV, which is, you know, using comedy, which is supposed to be, you know, 
a source or a tool for you know criticizing social structures and social norms that are oppressive to basically encourage and like claim you know the willingness to commit rape it was absolutely outrageous and his half-assed apology of uh, you know saying uh, sorry we offended the feminists uh, we know that the feminists are this and the feminists are that but you know uh, like like only uh, feminists are anti-rape yeah yeah and you know he just basically shot on the experience of, of, uh, of experiences of women uh, worldwide by making this about not only about feminists by the way he made it about tiktok people like he literally in his apology he had two apologies one filmed uh, in his comedian character and one on the news uh, uh, the primetime news of, of al jadid and in both he said like sorry i'm apologize to the tiktok people who gives a shit about tiktok it's, this is not about tiktok and it, it just you know, um, it just showed, and you see the comment section, for example, on, on these videos of um, him apologizing, and you see how people are telling him, oh, no need to apologize, you just say the truth where you find it and stuff. You see, like, a lot of support to this kind of uh, misogynistic rhetoric, which was really disheartening, yeah. Yeah, that is, that's really d- disappointing. Moving on to high politics, uh, <laughs> we have, the, the game is still being played. Right now, uh, as far as the financial appointments, which we briefly spoke about last week, they, they were postponed again this past week. And and what happened was uh, sort of earlier on earlier on in the week, four previous prime ministers, Hariri, Makati, uh, Senora, and uh, Salem, issued a statement. Uh, I believe it was Monday, coming out against these financial appointments uh, to BDL, the Banking Control Commission, uh, the Capital Markets Authority, etc. Also, Samir Jaja, and notably, Seyman Frangie also warned against these appointments. Now, others also had warned, said, like, some of these on the list aren't exactly heavyweights. I, I think uh, some of the nerds were, were in on that as well, right, Mohammed? Yeah, uh, the, uh, one of the candidates for vice governor wasn't really the kind of profile you'd expect from a vice governor, especially considering the fact that this is we're in the middle of a banking crisis and a currency crisis you need someone with that kind of with the credentials of a monetary stroke financial economist who could help navigate through this crisis but then one of the candidates surprisingly was well maybe not surprisingly considering the economic the the political context was a lawyer who specializes in international law linked to uh, one of the politicians in Lebanon one of the key politicians in Lebanon so yeah it was quite bizarre as if we haven't really learned our lesson. Right, right, exactly. Um, now, now, all of this came to a head on Thursday. Cabinet met on Thursday. The item was on the agenda. But Frangie, who is who's a part of the government, right, uh, who has two ministers, he withheld his two ministers from Thursday's cabinet meeting in protest over this item being uh, on the agenda. Uh, so Labor Minister Lamia Yamin uh, and Public Works Minister Michel Najjar were not present. At that meeting, Diab ended up scrapping the item, and he has since also called for drawing up an appointments mechanism based on merit. Whether that's going to happen in this case uh, is questionable. Uh, most likely, there will just be some massages to the list that we have right now, maybe a, a few different names to make everybody happy. But the, the bottom line here, the point here, which is sort of crazy, is uh, Slayman for NGA basically exercised a veto over cabinet action in this. Uh, at least for now. And 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 it's that's kind of mind-blowing because Frangia's Marada movement has a total, a grand total of three MPs in parliament out of 128 MPs. Uh, so they're not very powerful. But what we see 
is that Frangia is really pushing his hand. And we saw this as well in the cabinet formation process. Originally, remember, uh, there were these reports that cabinet was going to be 18 members and one of them was going to be for Frangier. Well, at the end of the day, what happened, well, there were 20 and two of them were for Frangier. So this action uh, this past week seems to be very much in line with that, with yeah, Frangier very much, you know, flexing his political muscle. Yeah, and to give some background, uh, we're talking about a race happening kind of uh, in the horizon between Frangie and Gibran Basile for presidency. Or, I mean, Frangie is always um, one of the top names on the list for uh, who who might be chosen as the next president. Uh, although he's not a very, he's a divisive figure in Lebanese politics to an extent. He, he's definitely kind of from the Syrian regime camp of Lebanese politics, if you want to consider it uh, based on the March 8, March uh, 14 kind of division. However, what is most interesting about Frangi now is that he's standing against Gibran Basile and kind of trying to rally some opposition against him in uh, in the northern areas where he has uh, influence. And Birri is known not to be very fond of Basile getting to the presidency. And Birri seems to be kind of giving Frangi the room that he needs or the, the, the leverage that he needs uh, to do these things and using him as an excuse, more or less, in my opinion, because otherwise, really, Frangi doesn't have this power. And when Hariri was supporting him for president instead of Michel Aoun, uh, when Hariri changed his mind and when Jaja chose Michel Aoun instead, Frangi, you know, his, his real size was revealed. He's only powerful when big blocks support him. He has influence in a very specific area in Lebanon. So this seems to be Birri behind the, in the backstage. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it also, though, just shows you that as a group, the Zoama, um, they're still playing the same old game, which is, you know, try to get as many appointments as possible in the state, because that's how you control the gravy train or what used to be the gravy train that was the state, right? Now, despite the fact that the state is essentially bankrupt, uh, these Zoamas are still going by the same playbook. They still want to have their people in control of whatever positions they can get. Yeah, and more than that, we don't have a technocratic government. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, I hope everyone is, is over this lie by now and I can see that this is a purely a political government, a cabinet just with uh, names who are basically people who are not very politically ambitious. But this is not a technocratic government. This is a government where, you know, Frangie can decide to boycott a, a session and two ministers don't go because of his position on appointments. Right. So this has nothing to do with the technocracy and competence and all of these things. It's just And Berry did the same thing last week, right? When we talked yeah. about Berry saying, if this doesn't happen, then starting Tuesday, my, my ministers will not be there. Yeah, it's his ministers. Yeah, absolutely. The only uh, minister that seems to have a real degree of freedom is is the prime minister, Hassan Diab. He seems to be <laughs> somewhat like relatively more independent than the others. But yeah, as you say, the, the ministers, if their sign says don't go, they don't go. That doesn't sound like independent technocrats to me. <laughs> yeah. Moving into finance a little bit more, uh, going from the politics of it to the actual what's going on in the street. So this week, basically, banks stopped altogether giving dollars uh with 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 some exceptions i i understand like at least some fresh money accounts uh you can still get dollars i guess depending on the bank yeah i mean uh when it comes to these dollar restrictions i'm let, let's be quite honest this is not news banks are running out of dollars if not 
if, if they haven't already run out of dollars for now, uh, they're using this quite frankly lousy excuse right now that oh COVID-19 is preventing is preventing us from shipping dollar banknotes into Lebanon which we know is not true because uh, COVID-19 restrictions only apply to flights of that involve people rather than cargo so it's 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 quite bizarre that they use that excuse but it's not surprising that you know They've reached a point where they're saying, well, sorry, we don't have dollars anymore. If COVID-19 was just a very convenient excuse to stop shipping, stop giving out dollars to people. Yeah, there was a, a report from AFP this week that quoted an anonymous member of the Association of Banks in Lebanon. Yeah, making this insane claim that, oh, the airport's closed, so we can't get dollars physically into the country, which, as you say, like that's that's just false. It, it is a, a total falsehood. Cargo is still coming in. Exactly. Uh, that, that is that is an insane, you know, mistruth to come out of there. I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that AFP let an anonymous person make such a ridiculous claim. Yeah, it's just, you know, desperately looking for an excuse, no matter how ridiculous it is, to stop, quote unquote, giving out dollars that perhaps no longer are there to begin with. Right. And, and at the same time uh, with all of this, we actually had some an, another group of protesters uh, outside a bank in Lebanon this week, and, and they got detained by security forces. Yeah, um, I think one journalist and six activists uh, is, is it, because we, I saw different numbers, but uh, overall, it's seven people who were detained in Hamra protesting against uh, Blom Bank for the most, I think, the most realistic report that I read about the reason for the protest is that uh, is, is related to checks that were collected for charity campaigns, because now we have a lot of charity and a lot of solidarity campaigns, especially in terms of supporting poor families and their livelihoods during the coronavirus uh, lockdown. And Blom Bank apparently is refusing to cash any of the checks. So this is why the protest happened. But obviously, against the backdrop of all the anger against the banks and the role and like, you know, bringing us to this bad point and just humiliating people in general. Anyway, uh, one of uh, all of them have been released. Uh, the last one was Khudr Anwar. Uh, anyone who has been protesting in Lebanon the last 12 years knows who Khudr Anwar is. He's like one of these, you know, uh, comrades who you will all, always find behind your back in the, in, the, in the protest squares. Very dedicated kind of uh, person. So there was a little bit of a solidarity campaign with him on, on social media as well, obviously, uh, before he was released on Friday night. And the weekend before that, uh, we didn't mention that on our last podcast, but also there was some issue in, in, in Akkar that led to the arrest of two activists uh, by the information branch uh, that time uh, and they were held for around 24 hours so these stories you know these things happening they always kind of uh, remind us bring back the the fear or the concern among a lot of pro thora pro revolution people in lebanon that um, this lockdown and the half kind of state of emergency that we have is dangerous because it allows the political elite to use it to crack down on activists or to just go a bit you know, further than they usually go uh, in similar situations or to kind of teach us lessons by using the few examples of we, had, we have of protests to make a lesson out of it or to, you know, to, to crack down on people a bit harder than usual. We're yet to see how this will go, how this will go, because people have been quite restrained in terms of their actions. There haven't been a lot of actions. There have been some in Tripoli, some in Dahiye, but relatively, it's still people are still calm. Uh, I wonder what will happen when things escalate more in terms of uh, just you know 
hungry people and poor people going to the streets and saying, you know, fuck all this. We don't care anymore about Corona. We we want our our dignity. So we'll see how the Arab government will be acting then. Uh, and whether we will have a state of emergency or not. Yeah, and, and we uh, also got more news this week about just the deteriorating economic conditions in the country, right? Uh, the the economy minister, Raul Neyme, he said that uh, prices of imported goods uh, had increased between 50 and 55%, which, you know, Lebanon doesn't just import luxuries, they also uh, import a lot of basic items. Um, and so this is really bad news for for the entire country. Uh, and, and obviously it makes our current monetary and financial crisis, you know, the, the, the importantness of this uh, come into a lot sharper relief. And related to those the, to the financial measures that that are being taken, there, there was a big one this week that came late in the week. BDL issued a couple of circulars that really shook things up. Yeah, it's, it's uh, it was a really unexpected uh, decision, to, uh, even though some people were pushing for it. So basically, what was the circular all about? They were basically saying that, well, there were two parts of the circular. The first part was, okay, if you've got uh, US dollar account deposits that it, that are up to 3,000 USD, you could now withdraw them in the uh, in LBP, but at the Sorraf uh, rate, at the market rate, which on the face of it looks great, you know, right now, rather than withdrawing at the official rate, which we know is not applicable anymore, you could now withdraw at the market rate. But the other quote unquote weird part was if you have up to 5 million liras in lira, uh, lira deposits, you could actually withdraw it at the market rate. So what, 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 and, and this shows the kind of financial wizardry that BDL generally gets involved in, which is, so basically the idea is if you have 5 million liras, you could to, to withdraw them first, it gets converted to USD at the peg. And then it gets converted back to lira at the market rate. And using the market rate today, if you have five, five million, uh, up to five million lira deposit, you end up withdrawing the equivalent of nine million lira because of the difference between the peg and the market rate. It just shows the kind of financial wizardry involved here. Now, then, Mohammed, can, can can I ask you really quickly? What yeah. do you mean by what do you or what does BDL mean by the market rate here? The Sorraf rate. So there, there's another that came out on the very same day, actually, where we're basically they're trying to centralize the price making process for the Sorraf rate. So uh, they're going to set up this electronic platform along with uh, some of the main Sorafs who will set the daily Sorraf rate, which banks would use as basically uh, the... Uh, the rate for which smaller smaller depositors can withdraw in lira. But what I understood from the circular, the the second circular that deals with the with this specifically, is that the bank is allowed to have their own. Uh, each bank is allowed to have their own exchange rate, and they have to publish it every morning. So, and they, it will be on the website. So, I what I understood is that the central bank will not have one rate that will be the market rate. So, if you go to Blom, you might have. For your same 5 million lira, you might get a different amount than if your account is an Audi. I mean, yeah, again, like like with most circulars with BDL, there's a lot of lack of clarity. You could interpret it in multiple ways. And this this was one weak spot here where okay, if, 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 you're, if, if you're claiming that you're trying to centralize the market trade, then why are you saying that each bank would post their own rate? Like there's it's a bit of an oxymoron here. 
uh, unless they're saying, well, the market rate is going to be basically a benchmark where, you know, banks are allowed to vary based on that. And that's quite worrying. So let's say the market rate is, say, 2,800 uh, liras to the dollar. A bank could say, well, okay, I'm going to allow you as a deposit to withdraw at 2,600, for example. Uh, and that would be at the expense of the small depositor. So again, there's, uh, it's not cr crystal clear here if all parties, including the banks, should comply with this uh, with this new market rate. So yeah, it is a bit odd. But jumping back to the first circular, which is not about the market, uh, uh, which is about the withdrawal limits. One thing that uh, that I found quite bizarre is the way they define deposits. It's not deposits in gross, but they said deposits net of outstanding debt. So let's say you're a small depositor and you've got a uh, mortgage yeah basically it's lights out for you you cannot you're not included here because uh, basically it's it's your deposit minus any any outstanding debts and that, that that's the basis which allows you to withdraw so let's say you've got say uh, $3000 worth of deposits and say uh, $7000 worth of uh, loans uh, you can't really withdraw at the market rate. That doesn't apply to you. Or at least the interpretation that I got from the circular, they, they didn't say... Now, some, some people came up and said, well, not really. They're saying outstanding uh, uh, installments that are due on that month. But really, if you read the circular, they're very clear. They're not talking about outstanding installments. They're talking about outstanding debt. So, again, it brings us back to... BDL's lack of clarity in most of their circulars, you, you could interpret it in multiple ways. Is this a deposit net of all outstanding debts, or is this a deposit net of debt that is due this month only? Because if it's net of all debts, then very few stand to benefit from the circular, really. So yeah, it's, uh, it, it was a bit odd, to put it very likely. So I'm, I'm curious on this, when do we expect to see implementation and when do we, therefore, uh, when do we expect to see some clarity come to these questions? I think that's a question which we should be asking BDL. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, again, it goes back to BDL's track record, actually, of lack of clarity since, the, at least since this crisis started, actually, it's well before the crisis started, you know, they throw a circular you don't understand what's the rationale for that circular. They don't explain, okay, this is why we're issuing a circular. They just throw the circular out and they say, okay, that's it. Apply it. And it's really odd. Yeah, and it's, it's, this is one of the cases where you see how a central bank in a time of crisis can actually be the central, the, sp the space of central like, kind of uh, decision-making uh, in terms of economic policy. Uh, because like it's this is coming at a point of vacuum where the government hasn't passed yet any law for capital controls or organizing uh, withdrawals and this was expected to happen um, so BDL claimed a responsibility and um, actually they claimed a prerogative that before they used to say uh, Salemi used to say no this is outside of our jurisdiction and we can't do it Nothing changed since Salemi last said that BDL is not allowed to uh, do anything without an official, an official capital controls law. But now BDL seems to be very uh, comfortable in moving, stepping in and taking quite drastic action in these things through these decisions in coordination with the government, of course. So this is really like uh, big policy being made through the central bank instead of the, the government. And uh, it comes back to this, the big question always, 
of whether this is a good idea because you know the central bank is probably the least accountable of all authorities uh, in the Lebanese government in terms of its its nature and uh, the fact that it's not you know part of the democratic institutions yeah, yeah. absolutely so this circular uh sounds to me like this is yet another step towards devaluation of the lira and perhaps even a first uh, step towards floating the lira, right? Yeah, well, b before we even talk about, well, yes, so the, the circular, which is about the electronic platform, it is de facto, uh, they, they are basically acknowledging the market rate, yeah? They're saying, okay, there's this official rate, the 1500, which we know is no longer applicable, that is only limited now to interbank transactions and some basic imports of basic necessities. But, but right now they're acknowledging that the real rate which you would be using for most transactions is the prevalent market rate. And they're trying to sort of uh, control that market rate uh, in one way or the other. But yeah, they're, they're basically acknowledging that, you know, this peg is no longer there really. It's only applicable in a very, very narrow context. Uh, and, and just to just to give everybody, if you're not following this very closely, this week the lira stayed at about 2,800, same as last week. But what that is basically is almost a 50% drop in value for the for the currency. Yeah, and I just want to mention something that the circular that discusses the web the the foreign exchange uh, process, the website, and the bank. Uh, the commercial bank's own exchange rates, etc. It also mentions that uh, exchange shops, uh, sarrafin, who want to deal with foreign currency have to apply to the central bank for that uh, if they are from class A. And then the central bank can decide who is allowed to participate or not, who allow is allowed to buy and sell uh, foreign exchange to the central bank. So basically, the central bank is coming in the mar into the market as a buyer and seller of foreign exchange, and uh, like clearly, which is something that can only be allowed in coordination with the finance ministry in cases of emergency. And this is what uh, it's doing. And why I think what's happening now is that the idea behind it is that you will have a series of shops that have as a kind of similar market rates these are the shops that get their money from the central bank and then the another completely different black market but the, there will be a main market with a relatively stable or controllable uh, market rate in coordination with the central bank and then you have the bank's market rates or whatever they choose to be their market rates so the basically <laughs> Salem is keeps kind of creating new uh, rates for the lira to the dollar and i think we reach a point soon where we, we will have no idea how to kind of understand this and like just as no as ordinary citizens trying to navigate this whole financial chaos it will be so complicated and this complication <laughs> yeah. is is where we lose money as ordinary people this is what happens you know when you don't know how to act in the best in your own best interest because the system is just trying to fuck you by making it too complicated well i mean if, if you look at it salemi has been desperately trying to maintain a peg that actually no longer holds. If you look, this is not the first time he tries to make a decision to control the rate. He tried first fixing it at 2000 with ABL, then he issued a circular about this, then uh, then he he was he set a limit of 30% that, that, that basically, uh, what was it, uh, the Sarafs could only buy dollars at a rate that is 30% higher than the market rate. And then he comes up with this decision the, now that, you know, oh, the official rate, there's the a market. market rate and we're going to have to control it. 
So this is not the first time where he desperately tries to sort of control foreign exchange. Uh, so yeah, no surprises here. It just speaks so, up to the reality that the exchange rate has gone out of BDL's control. Yeah, yeah. So, so what exactly does this mean, though, for maybe for like poor Lebanese? What what does this mean for the value of the lira? What does this mean for their purchasing power? Uh, what kind of effects do we expect to come out of this over the next few months? Yeah. So, so uh, let's not talk about the second circular, which is about organizing the FX. Let's talk about the withdrawals. Yeah, the uh, where they allow uh, uh, quote unquote small depositors. The way they define small depositors is quite bizarre because it's only up to three thousand dollars to withdraw in the market rate. Now, that that is around. Uh, interestingly enough, that's around like what sixty percent of deposits overall uh, in terms of numbers of deposits. So they they've got sixty percent of depositors out of their way essentially in one way or the other. But the thing is that we know that no one trusts the uh, uh, lira anymore. So what's going to happen essentially? What's very likely to happen is that the small depositors will understandably withdraw the limit up up until three thousand USD. And then they would go to the Saraf and replace it for USD, essentially so would withdraw in Lira at the market rate. And then they would go to the Saraf and uh, replace it and exchange it with USD and hoard the dollars, essentially, and quite, and quite understandably so. And this is during a time where dollars are so scarce. So that's going to put even more and more pressure on the exchange rate. And you would expect uh, the uh, rate to increase as a result of... The circular where you know people who do not trust the currency are just gonna withdraw everything and then convert to dollars and hoard it and it's quite funny that if you look at the circular they're clearly saying that this is only this is only applicable for depositors who want to withdraw the full amount of money up until three thousand dollars so it's not partial but full so they're actually in one way or another excluding 60 percent of depositors from the banking system so you've got 60 percent of depositors who are out of the banking system now so it's uh, it, it goes in contrast with the whole notion of financial inclusion where everyone should have access to financial services in one way or the other and all that in the favor of a cash economy which is not good in the Lebanese context, especially in the current circumstances. Right. There's been this big push. You know, it's a buzzword for the past few years, uh, you know, the financial inclusion, getting everyone banked. And now authorities seem to be running in the opposite direction. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I really uh, share the same concern about how, like, what kind of effect this will have in terms of l fewer people having access to the banking system because, you know, you can't open account an account now. You can't go to a bank and say, OK, I want to open an account, especially if in U.S. dollars. They will just say, you know, good luck finding that anywhere. Um, it doesn't happen. So this is a big worry. Another thing is that, uh, you know, the main purpose of uh, this whole thing is uh, not, to, not everything, but, you know, the lira part at least. So we have the USD accounts, the dollar accounts, where they just told people, okay, you can withdraw your dollars, but instead of withdrawing them and then going and exchanging them, we will do the exchange for you and we'll, we'll give you the whole thing in Lira. So if you look at uh, the uh, leaked BCC document, which showed the breakdown of depositors, the document which uh, Mohammed Azbib uh, shared a while ago, uh, that the category of depositors which uh, banks allowed to withdraw essentially have, have only a 35% 
participation rate. So only 35% of their deposits are in dollars. That adds up to around $350 million, which is it's not an awfully large amount of money. Yeah? And the fact that even though it's not a large amount of money, yet they didn't allow them to withdraw in dollars, uh, raises a lot of question marks about how much is the real supply of dollars in the country. If the central bank cannot spare, or the banks in general, cannot spare $350 million to small depositors, what are they going to do about the remaining depositors? Because remember, these three, $350 million is only a sliver of the total deposits, which are around $118 billion. And here we're talking only about the USD deposits. So uh, it's setting, it's giving a very, very worrying signal about what they might do for the remaining deposits. Uh, it seems like, you know, this is, uh, this. they're moving in the direction of uh, lirification in slow motion. And lirific, by lirification, I mean converting dollar deposits to lira in one way or the other. Uh, Mohammed Zbib made this point actually that you know if you uh, define small accounts as accounts slow as smaller than three thousand dollars or five million Lebanese pounds, then your definition of large accounts will be will possibly be too flexible in, in terms of including accounts that are actually quite small uh, in their size or medium as well. Because you know if you're talking about I don't know the the savings account of a retired couple you uh, of fifty sixty thousand dollars you shouldn't consider this anything other than you know a medium small account uh, but if if a they very small accounts actually yeah I mean relatively to 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 large accounts it's nothing but we we expect to see uh, not the most progressive kind of classification from uh, the authorities so. It's really worrying to see that they stop the small account definition at $3,000. What I'm expecting actually that might happen is that they're going to go in buckets, yeah? So they started off with the first bucket, which is really 2% of depositors. And in essence, what did they do? They indirectly lirified their accounts, yeah? They gave them the incentive to withdraw at the market rate at Lira, which it's very likely that many of them, many of, if not most of them, would go for. And in effect, uh, lirified 68% of depositors or made them lirify themselves at seemingly attractive rates. And what I think is going to happen is that, okay, they're going to go for the next bracket of depositors and, you know, uh, give them also an incentive to lirify themselves at perhaps a rate that is not as attractive as the first bucket here. So we are, we are, what we seem to be going for, and I do stand corrected here, is this sort of indirect lirification in slow motion, considering the fact that we have simply run out of dollars. It's as simple as that, really. We barely have any dollars left, and these are just about enough for us to import basic necessities. Right, right, right. And and it's uh, it's interesting, though, to, from sort of like a bank and financial system perspective, like you say, is $350 million, taking those dollars off of banks' balance sheets, it, it doesn't really do a whole lot. But on the other hand, it may sort of remove some of the street pressure. You know, we're talking about uh, the these uh, protesters who were arrested, as well as, I mean, it, it's been a, a long running theme, this sort of um, uh, campaign uh, against the banking system, calling out the financial system in Lebanon uh, for its problems. And so maybe instead of, uh, from, from the bank's perspective, instead of removing these people from their balance sheets, they're removing people they, they are hoping maybe to remove these uh, protesters from the street, this sort of outside political pressure on them as well. 
Absolutely. These are, from their opinion, the people who are most likely to protest in case they get harmed. But the thing is that, again, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to this point again. $350 million, and I'm talking here dollars, actual dollars, and not the lira equivalent, is not an awful lot relative to their balance sheets, relative to their central bank reserves, and yet they did not spare it. So again, I'm raising, I'm going to raise the question again, how much dollars do we really have in the system? It doesn't seem to be that we have as much dollars as BDL claims and as the bank seem to claim. Again, I'm going back to this point again, like how much dollars do we really have if you couldn't spare $350 million for small depositors? Yeah, and I just want to point out that, you know, apart from the USD accounts, uh, which, you know, were allowed to, people who have USD accounts are now allowed to withdraw them in Lira if they're small. But also the other kind of side of it, the Lira accounts, where you go uh, to, to the bank and, you know, you have an account of 4.5 or 5 million, say, and you get 9 million for it or 8 million, whatever the market rate will be uh, used in the process. But the idea that, you know, they're just giving you money that you don't have as, a, uh, as opposed to giving you your money uh, in the case of the USD account is how true. I see how, how I see it is yeah I mean it's it's it seems too good to be true I mean it's it's uh, um, I don't mind it I think it's a smart thing to do I don't really mind it I don't think it will cause any inflation or any um, like yeah, uh, it's quite minimal more it's devaluation quite it's it's I think it's smart actually however there are many things to point out here first of all if it's trying to replace the policy of you know targeting poor families then try again because uh, the, one of the problems is that in the poorest areas in Lebanon the ratio or the percentage of people who have bank accounts is much lower than in the rich areas because poverty does not work by individuals it works usually more or less by geography so you have the remote areas in Lebanon near the borders that are the poorest so you won't really help the poor people of Akkar who are agricultural workers by uh, who are also suffering from the inflation that we're suffering from by you know uh, doing this little financial wizardry as you call it even if you go to an employment benefits kind of policy which a lot of people are demanding and I think that it is also needed in the in the very immediate future you also don't help these people because most of the work is informal work that they cannot pro provide legal proof of. Um, so sometimes you just need direct cash assistance and you need programs that are very and universal programs that do not require any, you know, a lot of any documents or any bank accounts or anything to actually help people who are most in need in a time like this. Yes, but and I totally agree with your point. But then. Uh, when we, because this is in the context of the banking sector, uh, banks would have the counter argument that, well, our mandate is only towards our account holders. So uh, they would tell you, well, people who are outside the banking sector, that's the responsibility of the state. So again, like... From, yeah, I'm saying from, if this is only a problem if this is a replacement or an alternative for a government policy to help the poor. You see, if this no, is what think, the government is thinking... thinking yeah. I don't think it's an alternative. I think that this is just a way for banks to get 60% of depositors out of their way, which are 60% of potential uh, protesters, if not more. So uh, it's just a way to relieve them from that sort of popular pressure in case they take measures that are very unpopular. And we should just mention here just a note that, you know, we don't know how many people are involved in these 60% of deposits. They might be since 60% of depositors. They might be um, 
uh, I don't know, 50 or 40, depending on how many people own several accounts. I don't exactly. know if you have data because, about because, this, Ahmad, but Because the document yeah. is about the number of accounts and not the number of depositors. So again, uh, it does raise the issue, okay, is this 60% of depositors? Like, are these individual accounts for individual depositors or are these duplicate accounts by uh, a couple of depositors? So uh, that does raise a question again, like, are these really 60% of the depositors? But we could comfortably say that this is going to be a large chunk of total depositors. It might not be 60%, it might be 50%, it might be 40%, it might, but it is going to be a major chunk that they got out of the way from the bank's perspective, essentially. And I just want to make uh, another point here that is not made clear in the circular as far as I understood it. And uh, actually, I saw that um, uh, another person, I forgot who, also made the same point that this the circular does not clarify how this maximum amounts work, like the $3,000 or 5 million Lebanese pounds in terms of, for example, if I go to the bank and I have a USD account and a Lebanese Lira account, and uh, their total is more than 3000 or 5 million. Can I benefit from it or they uh, add to each other in the, in the calculations? You know, so would it be calculated as if uh, both of them are in one currency and if they exceed the maximum of that currency of $3,000, for example, then I wouldn't get, uh, I wouldn't benefit from this policy or not. This is also not not very clear. Um, I hope I didn't make it less clear, but, you know, there's a confusion around it. So we'll see how it goes in terms of implementation. It looks like it's the total. So they would add up... Uh, your lira account and your dollar account but then the question is at what rate they would be including the lira account or the dollar account so again there is a lot of clarity there there is uh, very little clarity here but it does seem like they're going to add up the accounts they did say the total amount and they didn't mention the currency as such so many things make this policy less and less accessible to people and that's perhaps one of the big conclusions of, of, of our discussion that you know there are there are problems that this policy does not go far enough. There are problems in how it defines small accounts. But there is also a big problem in terms of how many people will actually benefit from it. And those people who will benefit from it, will they lose later with the, with the depreciation of Lira and the market? I mean, we'll see about that. But it's, 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 it's an interesting development uh, that definitely uh, tells us a lot about how the government is perceiving this whole matter and how to go about it in, in light of, you know, the capital controls mm-hmm. law being in a vacuum. So uh, we'll see what uh, what this entails. But it's interesting and it's a very interesting instrument that, that the central bank employed here. And another one last thing, it's it speaks up also to the kind of measures that they take. It's very piecewise up until now. They've always been piecewise in the measures they take. It's not comprehensive as part of an overall plan. It's always piecewise measures. And we're still seeing that, that they're still following these sort of piecewise measures without taking into account, okay, the bigger picture, essentially. Yeah, and we need big kind of policies. We need like uh, like the problem with these besides uh, policies is that they don't bring the same kind of confidence that big programs bring. So uh, they don't bl- bring as change in the situation and the perception of people because now everyone is talking about oh maybe I can or not withdraw my money. I should or not withdraw my money. But there's th- there isn't like a sense of relief of public relief that can increase confidence in the lira or in the banking system or in any on the economy in general so uh, it doesn't bring the same kind of needed uh, change that we are, we are seeking at the moment uh, uh, as opposed to a capital controls law or a withdrawals and capital controls law that organizes everything and finally everyone knows 
what their legal rights are. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it seems as though we're sort of in a just wait and see mode right now as far as that goes. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Mohammed, uh, and, and sort of walking us through all of this. Really appreciate it. Likewise. Yeah, thank you for coming. Thanks, 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 Ben. Thanks, Nizar. Really appreciate it. It's great. Uh, and that's that's it for us. Uh, we we will uh, hopefully be back next week with another quarantine edition of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Uh, until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Hamad Faoud. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.